I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Thanks all so much for coming. It's lovely to see so many people here to celebrate allotments and growing with us. Uh, can, can everyone hear us at the back? Um, do, do wave and shout if, 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 <laughs> if we drop out, because um, I know how frustrating that can be. Um, as, as Claire said, we're here to, to celebrate um, and talk about this wonderful book, um, The Allotment by David Crouch and Colin Ward, uh, for which Olivia has written a, a new introduction. And it, I, I didn't know this book before, um, before reading it for this event, and I was struck by you know, its prescience and, 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 and its depth of scholarship, and we'll talk about all of those things um, today, I hope. But perhaps what we won't stress, I mean, it's not going to be gardener's question time, I think. That's, um, we were having a chat outside. <laughs> we, we, we'll try and help you with your potato blight and, and, and delphinium um, flowering, but um, some of us are more expert gardeners than others, and Olivia in particular can handle those kinds of questions. Um, so, yes, thanks for coming. Um, perhaps just to kick us off then, I could ask you to establish, Ken and Olivia, your, your allotment bona fides. What is your relationship with, with the allotment as an idea before we get to, or as a place? Before I'm we afraid get to I think about. it is as an idea. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, all, all, as we know, um, no ideas but in things. Yeah. Um, it's really part, because it's part of Colin Wall's kind of repertoire of places where he was able to demonstrate different social relations in a, in a modern society. And I suppose, I have to say on this occasion, it's, it's because of its kind of political purchase on my imagination that it's played this part. I mean, it's the same with plot lands, and it's the same with caravan parks, about which I, I've never experienced. Well, actually, I did. I lived on Canvey with mm. my family for two years. These are in, the places a, that, that, that Colin wrote about yeah, in, in, in other books. Yeah. Um, but it is really, uh, as this kind of place uh, where different kinds of social f relations are, uh, you know, um, what's the word, negotiated. Mm. Um, mm. They're not given, and, but they are kind of places where people learn to live with each other. Mm. And it is really the, the, the kind of social role of the allotment. Yeah. Brilliant, thanks. And Olivia, you have more practical experience of the allotment. Yeah, my practical experience is kind of out of date. So um, my sort of engagement with allotments came out of 
coming from road protests. So I was very involved in the environmental road protest movement, living in trees, living in these, again, very ad hoc communities, sort of built in contested and peripheral places. And when I came out of that movement fairly burnt out, like many activists, I got involved in things like permaculture. Um, I had an allotment, but I was also involved in a group called the Natty Trust, whose mission was to take over degraded spaces that were neglected and turn them into sort of community gardens. And I think the ethos was very much, it wasn't just about growing vegetables, it was about experiments with ways of living. And it was particularly about an interest in that kind of land that was somehow peripheral, somehow sort of located in a edge land, not quite city, not quite countryside. That, that was part of the attraction for me, mm. was, was the sort of free space. We were very keen, this is the 90s, on the concept of temporary autonomous zones. And I think there was something... Oh, zones, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think there was something about the allotment that sort of epitomised the temporary autonomous zone. So, yeah, it's an, it's an intellectual interest as well as a practical interest. And it's become, I suppose, gardening is, is something you've been doing your whole life and is the subject of, of your next book. Can we but announce that or is that we top can announce secret? That, yeah. that's yeah. <laughs> and, and, but, but, but actually, I mean, do you see a great difference between, between the garden and the allotment in terms of those, those bigger social questions about the yeah. kind of spaces they are, both of you? I think in it, at its very best, the garden can be an open space that's a constant negotiation with other beings and other species. But you do have this luxury of it being private. You're in charge. You've got not total control, but a degree of control. And I think the thing that's so interesting about the allotment is you have to negotiate all the time. You have to negotiate with other plot holders. You have to negotiate with the council, which might be on board with the allotment or not on board with the allotment. So that sense of being not just in continual relationship, but it, the sort of sense of inventing the relationship as you go along, working out new ways. I think that's what makes it feel so exciting to mm. me. Or sometimes really deeply frustrating. <laughs> I'm sure there are a lot of cultists in the room that know exactly what Maybe we should have a show of hands. How, yeah, how many of people here are actively them. involved in, in allotmenteering or have allotment? Oh, oh most wow. Of you. Oh, right, wow. you guys can do the talking. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I, I don't think I'd realised until until reading this book and, and your introduction, Olivia, was 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 just how far back the 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 idea of the allotment goes, and 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 Ward and Crouch trace it back to to the levellers and the diggers and, and and enclosures actually being the first moment when claiming land that had been common had been public for people and allotmenting it up, you know, dividing yeah. it up to, to share, became a kind of life political, social and historical debate. And I wonder, um, Ken, how much that fed into Collins or rather, was the allotment always going to be interesting to Colin because of that kind of negotiation, that historical transition between public well, he, and private? He, between... he was looking for politics in the present, in the day, in the moment. Uh, I met him in 1973 um, and I knew him for 40 years uh, until his death. Um, and when I met him, I was a rather traditional leftist who thought that a kind of political journal, you should have a masthead with a clenched fist and <laughs> a, head, a big headline in block bold black letters saying, you know, fought with the workers or general strike now. Um, and then I met Colin. And when you look at Anarchy magazine that he edited for 20 mm. years, it completely, to me, transformed the way of thinking about politics. And by the way... I think New Society, the magazine that a lot of the people in this room would have known and loved, has to have come out of Anarchy magazine. Mm. So many of the writers in Anarchy went over to New mm. Society, so many of the ideas. 
And what was different was that, uh, and there's a very good book about the design of Anarchy magazine, because it says that, unlike most left-wing magazines, that they, they kind of want the brand, you know, with the clenched fist and the, you know, big front page with a heavy... Every cover of every Anarchy magazine, it ran for 25 years, was different. Sometimes it was a children's drawing, sometimes it was a photograph, but you didn't know what was going to be inside. You weren't kind of seized by rhetoric. Mm. And everything was all every edition usually focused on a special theme, and it wasn't the, in the industrial worker, really, as the social, the agent yeah. and subject of historical change, which was completely refreshing, I have to say. And as a teacher, what was most refreshing to me was that Colin did actually, in the end, put the sovereign child at the heart of political change. I mean, he was devoted to the Jean Piaget book, Moral Education mm. of the Children, yeah, Moral Education of the Children, play in the, edu uh, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, and I so looked, he was attracted to these kind of unofficial spaces exactly. where, so I, yeah. I, I listed, uh, I went through all the um, uh, covers of the Anakin magazine in the last two days. And here <laughs> oh. are the themes of um, adventure playgrounds, delinquency, the land, house and home, prison reform. Prison reform was very, very important yeah. to him. Child psychology, direct action. How do you do, how do you achieve these things? Anarchist cinema, the films of Vigo, Bunel, Falakati. Secondary school, what is it like? How does it work? Do the, what do the children think about it? Tenant control of housing, workers control, homosexuality and bisexuality, blues and folk music architecture. So he was coming at politics sideways, mm. not through mm. the, the rhetoric mm. and the books and the ideas. He was coming at it through, here are these places in, in our society, we're living in them, we're using them, we're working them. What can we learn from them? How to kind of spread that kind of form of... And lots of those places on your list are these kind of overlooked or unsexy or slightly down at heel spaces that are utilitarian. And one of the images I had in mind when I was reading this is thinking about the allotment as this kind of slightly confrontational space, which is perhaps not what we think of it as, you know, habitually. But when, you know, Corbyn was mocked more for his allotmenteering oh. than almost as much as he was for, you know, claiming Ulysses as his favourite book, there's this kind of radicalism to the fuddy-duddiness of allotments that well, the war that picks up on, I think. It embodies an old left that made New Labour incredibly uncomfortable, that they felt like they'd moved away from that. They felt like they'd swept away Clause 4, they'd swept away socialism, and with that, they'd swept away the miner in the flat cap who had his allotment. And then Corbyn pops up, and that's the thing that almost embodies that radical left but sort of... Tatty left yeah, that feels yeah. very much not of. I'm very much of the tatty left. But <laughs> it's not 21st century. The feral century. left. The, the feral left. Yeah. yeah. So right. I think I think he was signalling something with that that was really at odds with where the Labour Party had got to. Mm. In the yeah, that's by the by from the 90s onward. Yeah, and the other thing this book does is you know it's a, it's a for those of you who haven't read it it's it's, it's a kind of very deep historically researched and, and oral history of the allotment, but it. It's interesting how the rise and fall of the allotment in the 20th century mirrors those kinds of political changes too. Obviously, in the, the sort of post-war yeah. years, the dig for victory, uh, you know, celebration of of of, of, of lot made it uh, much more 
common to, for, for councils to be obliged to give land over to allotments hearing. But by the 70s, and as you say, by the 80s, by the time this book was published, that had become deeply objectionable and unfashionable for mainstream politics to mm. articulate. I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on the changing nature, the broad history of, of the allotment as it's described in this book and, and in your own experience of it. <laughs> Is that too big a question? Well, I, th I think another person who came actually through anarchy is Richard Mayby. Mm. Yeah. The unofficial countryside. Exactly. It's really when people take over something that's marginal and they give it such me depth of meaning and purpose that it becomes almost radioactive. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's that notion of kind of community ownership and people doing things themselves is, is such a... Uh, a kind of um, a challenge to political orthodoxy. Mm. Um, and, that, and that does draw on, uh, as Colin would have said, the whole history of self-activity from the diggers and the levellers, from John and I were just talking beforehand. I mean, Colin was very f f uh, devoted to this folklore. It's not a myth, but it, this folklore is found in many European and Middle Eastern countries that if you build a house within 24 hours and you can put a chimney in and you have smoke coming out of that chimney, that place is yours for in perpetuity. And he was very interested in this notion of the land. How do you get it back? Yeah. And what are the kind of the, the rituals? And rituals are very important, aren't they? For I mean, even the beating the bounds. Mm. Yeah. You know, this is our space, you know. Um, and footpath systems, all those things, they're always under attack, you know, because they're, they're a reminder of the old mm. way of claiming and uh, very hard struggles to claim that this is the way we walk to church or this is the way we carry the coffins. Mm. And, um, and mm. he, he was fascinated by that rather than the top-down kind of looking at the land records. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah, where the boundaries are officially yeah, measured. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a I think that's what... Um, so I, I, ca I came to this book because I was invited to write the introduction. I didn't know it before. And I just finished writing the book about gardens and land use. So I'd read an enormous amount about enclosure, which is the process by which land was taken from common usage or wastes, land that many people could use into private ownership. And that process starts sort of in the 15th century, but gets more and more intense towards the 17th and 18th century, reaching something like a fifth of the land in private ownership by the 1940s and now something like one percent of the population owns really something no. like 70 percent of the country something horrific so you we'll know, fact check this, those stats there's well, it's in my introduction <laughs> yeah. I can't remember the, number. the other figures are right but that one's <laughs> it might be worse than that yeah. anyway so this this sort of process by which the land is being taken into private ownership and I think I'd had a sense reading those histories, and a lot of them are really radical histories, but that, that was the sort of, um, you know, that it was a tragedy. It was a tragedy enacted upon the poor. It was a tragedy enacted upon the agricultural labourer. And somehow this book sort of twists that story on its head. It's, it's absolutely the tragedy of the commons being taken, but what they foreground, I think, really cleverly from the sort of... Um, pig and cot schemes that start in the 17th and 18th century it, is that it's a mutual aid. It's people mm. figuring it out for themselves. It's not like, oh, the rich decide that the poor, struggling poor need to be given some land, let them have a cabbage field. It's a process by which people are demanding, insisting and taking land. 
and being um, blocked sort of in perpetuity. So now we have councils taking allotments back, but you have this sense of um, landowners refusing people the rights to have allotments, taking allotments away from them. So, Well, there was a lot of grumbling, wasn't there, by factory owners saying... You can't if give them allotment because they'll neglect their factory work if they're growing prize vegetables. If they can vegetables grow enough or, food to eat, yeah. then they're not going to work for us. So let's stop them growing enough food to eat. So that that sense that the point of enclosure is to create a labour force, a precariat mm. labour force, mm. is not a new concept. That is really the driving motivation, I think, of the enclosures. And the allotment acts as a sort of scene of resistance to that narrative. Yeah. That's what was so exciting for me about the yeah, allotment. Yeah, I agree. That that was a kind of something new for me and yeah. too. But but it also sort of ties into to, to what Ken was saying. And in fact, one of the, the, the really kind of exciting strands for this book for me was the attention it pays to the kind of, one of the chapters called, I think, the, the allotment aesthetic, the look of the oh, thing, yeah, yeah. you know, the, the kind of ramshackle, self-DIY shed and, and, and patches that are kind of orderly, but not quite orderly. Yeah. And of course, that's so opposed to exactly the kind of garden, Livia, that, that I suppose English gardener, garden designers are famous for, which strip landscape of... Personhood in a very landscape. artificial the yeah. vacated landscape the, that has no people in it. The, and the, the, the ha ha is the, the, the landscape. And, but not in a kind of taking ownership in a kind of Protestant ownership is derived from yeah. farming it or whatever. It's about, yeah. as you say, mutually worked out and negotiated but it has, relationships. It has this, yeah, has this kind of radioactive power really to challenge kind of land, the land value. Land value. Mm. Yes. Mm. And I, I mean, I think like Colin in a way. Um, Henry George, the land tax uh, proponent of the of the end of the Victorian age, was actually had more influence than Marx. Uh, and today, I think the notion that land value rather than labour value is oh, the well. one thing that yeah. restructures is restructuring cities as we sit here and speak. Yeah, it's only land values that now says what can be built where and what land has got to be used for. Yeah, I mean the notion that we voluntarily might say, we would like this here and we'd like that there, it's gone. I mean, the, the price of land in London, for example, is just ridiculous. You can't have marginal uses. Mm. Yeah. And mm. this is changing the face of the city. And like the railways selling off all of their land, yeah. which made a massive difference, because a lot of allotments are on railway land or a lot of sort of individualist businesses were set off on railway land. And as soon as that's taken into we're no longer letting this out on charitable basis or on low-rent basis. It's got to go to the value of the land that's yeah. the adjudicated value of the land. Then everything changes. And, of course, that process is just accelerating in, in, yeah. in the yeah. contemporary moment, I mean, which makes this book, I think, so prescient. Those dis discussions around brownfield development. Around I mean, some people in the room will remember, and I can't, my, name, my memory for names is not, but, um, but just when the Olympic site was announced, mm. and it, mm. there was a beautiful allotment along the River Lee. I mean, yeah. fabulous. Yeah. I, mean, I went there a number of times. And they were the last to put up a struggle. And it, it was a completely wonderful, self-organised, extensive community. Lots of Italian people there, R Romanian people there. Very, you know, very... And they were swept away and just told, <clears throat> well, it doesn't matter, you, we'll put you out in Enfield. I mean, that's all the same mm. thing, isn't it? But it isn't. Mm. You know, it's to do with how you feel about being next to the Lee, mm. next to mm. the yeah. housing where you grew up. Yeah. It's that piece of land. It's the intimacy with... And that's happening, that process is happening even within the timescales that those huge developments are pretending that they're going to accommodate allotments yeah. for. I have friends who were involved in designing a new allotment as part of the Olympic Park, which even now has 
been encroached on within you know the 10 years since the park was built by buildings that are casting you know shade onto yeah. the plot that now can't be sustained so finding these scraps of land that can finding be protected and keeping, can, them. And keeping them. Because you're yeah. almost an invitation to the developers by yeah, taking yeah. up, oh, it looks like that's useful land. Should we segue just briefly into the project that you're doing? Yeah, well, I would you dignify it with the word project. project. But yeah, we, we can talk. I've, I've, one just of the reasons it seems I suppose like it fits is, there. Yeah, I, I run a community garden in, in Leighton, which isn't quite an allotment. In fact, we've thought quite long and hard about what kind of vision we would have for the for the for the garden when we when we started it and we we settled on the idea that individual plots would be too privatized actually so we've got a, a model which is that we garden together every week there's about 50 people involved and it's everyone's welcome and and we plant together and we try and garden together and whatever we harvest when it's ready is shared out with whoever's there uh we we're not the most productive gardeners but we we do our best but it's but I, but yeah i hadn't really thought about the deep history of, of 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 those those kinds of negotiations until actually reading this book and and one of the things that struck me when reading it is is how the kind of low level so we've, we've spoken about the kind of utopian principles the mutual aid the gift economy all of the good things that allotments bring with them but of course they also bring with them the petty bureaucracies of any small-scale political <laughs> organisation, <laughs> however idealistic. And I wonder if, if that's worth talking about or thinking about how that's negotiated and what that means for these kinds of projects. Yes. It's, they, they are utopias, of course, we, we can acknowledge that, whilst also say there's, there's difficulties in those negotiations. But do you see those as part of the, part of the story, part of the beauty of the allotment is those... Yeah, I, th I think so the utopia my... is also doing the utopian work of figuring out how we want to do things together because otherwise it is just an autocracy of one person saying this is how we do this here and no conflict is allowed. Um, my, my sort of experience of conflict over allotments, which actually has become increasingly sort of a site of enormous conflict in gardening generally, is that I was very interested in doing very little with my allotment. I, I was a herbalist at the time. I wanted to... Um, grow medicinal herbs, which are better known to most allotmenteers as weeds. So <laughs> I wasn't massively popular because I was allowing pernicious weeds to grow on my side. You were rewilding. I was rewilding. And it's really interesting how much that's become a fault line that is just, you know, I was at Chelsea, got a flower show this year, and it, the debate is just racing through gardening about whether rewilding is a kind of gardening, whether it's mm. appropriate to allow land to just do what it wants, whether the gardener should be engage so the allotment is a sort of social space where lots of people have got their own agenda of what they're doing on that so it makes it to me absolutely fascinating <laughs> maybe painful as a participant but fascinating to think about mm -hmm. do you think that's one of the things that that, that colin was interested yeah in, or well he had a lot of I, I, want, I want to write this up because i I'd, i've only been thinking hard about it quite recently because it i've already said it's the centenary of his death um, no. next year. Well, he was um, born in 1924, uh, and so there's 100 years next year. Mm -hmm. There's quite a lot of things going on, books, films, architectural competitions, and so on. So watch this space. But one of the things that he, he, he kind of would always say, but never really extended, but he, he would, it was almost a lecture in which he rarely ever gave in the sense of that kind of... He said, too often we, we con confuse the social with the political. And, and I made a list of the things that he would have said what was kind of political, the difference within that. The social is free-ranging, inclusive, porous, self-created, episodic. Mm. It comes and goes. It's demotic. It's in ordinary language. 
it's playful, it's negotiated, all that is in constant negotiation, and it's usually outdoors. <laughs> um, whereas, you know, the political tends to focus on the institutional, it's exclusive, you're either in our party or you're not in our party, it has rules of entry, hierarchy of power, life gets very routinized, it's jargon rich, it's goal orientated, it's the heavily dependent on, on the division of labor, and it's usually indoors. So if you look at what Collins, if you look at all the books that Collins wrote about, it's the adventure playground, street life, plotlands, bungalows, beach huts, camping, public parks and public transport. Mm. So it is that tenuous kind of sinuous network mm. of spaces in the town or the city where, you know, where kind of community is built. But it, he thought they were worth attention, but he didn't necessarily romanticise the politics of them. No, no, exactly. And also it's not necessarily, I think, he's quite kind of clear-sighted and practical about the fact that this isn't going to feed the world. You know, that no. actually there's a, there's a, you know, the, the problems of productivity that perhaps some of us in this room might um, have experienced on our own allotments is, is, is common. And, you know, mm. mass factory farming, professional farmers knowing, you know, using pesticides, you, you know, and, and, and indeed buying in, you know... Um, Fixed nitrogen fertilizers of various kinds is 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 a more efficient use of land in terms of volume of produce made than an allotment can be, and there's a short kind term. of clear in the short term, yeah. In so the there's this term. clear eye tension, I think, or rather assessment of that on in this book that he's not. And I, I guess those kinds of arguments are underpinning Olivia, what you're talking about too, the tension between rewilding and and and, mm. and formal gardening and ha what, what what affects turning every back garden in the country into a, a, a wildlife haven would, would have on the environmental kind of questions that we're all facing, which are lurking in this book, but aren't as acute, obviously, as I think they are today for, for us. I think it would have been really interesting to see what Colin would have made of the next... Was, was it written in the 80s, this book? 88, it was. Yeah, of yeah. the next 20 years in terms of you feel the sort of nascent ecological questions yeah. being asked, but the sense of... Yeah, exactly those things. Nitrogen fertilisers, the idea that you can farm in those sort of ways is becoming more and more of an impossible argument because of what's happening to soil health, what's happening to microbial activity in the soil. So I wonder whether the allotment would actually start emerging now as a potentially more useful answer to those questions. I would, I would push for the community cost. garden. The community garden. <laughs> well, garden. only because partly I was thinking, you know, do you remember, you know, G.K. Chesterton is mentioning this book and his kind of quite wacky theory of distributionism, which someone summarised as he thought that owning the means of production meant everyone had to have a coal mine in their back garden. There's that kind of, there's that kind of sense of the, the hyper-localisation yes. of production. And, but, of course, he also... Uh, um, Ward and Crouch both point out that the kind of utopianism of... of you know, they, they, they talk very critically about collectivization in Soviet Russia and the fact that the, the allotment became this symbol of freedom after, mm. um, the, you know, during the Cold War and afterwards. The, there was this explosion in, in mm. allotmenteering in, in Russia and also in America in the 40s and 50s. I was astounded to hear that it was the biggest hobby in, in America, community gardening. Um, and in East Germany, where they occupy yeah. a really interesting position because they were these individualistic spaces. So in a culture that is incredibly sort of directed, controlled and surveilled, the allotment and the allotment shared suddenly becomes this politically very subversive mm. and, um, you know, a, a kind of sanctuary space in a way that we might talk about in sentimental terms, but in that particular political moment, in those decades, it's something 
much more meaningful and powerful. It's as significant as a pair of Levi's or something in terms well, of self-expression. Well, almost more so, yeah. yeah. But as high risk as yeah. a pair of Levi's. Yeah. Which is hard to think about when it's sort of got this kind of cosy aura in England that it might have been a place that was really dissident. Mm. Yeah. There's a couple of... Sorry, Ken, did you want to... I was just going to say that, um, obviously, it was paradox that he earned... Well, he, for a large part of his life, he actually worked in the, the Town and Country Planning Association, yeah. which is don't normally put anarchism and planning, you know, <laughs> in, in the same Planned sense. Anarchism. But maybe you should. But he was very interested in architecture, but obviously he was interested in architecture that didn't kind of... Was in, wasn't intentionally brutal or designed for the long-term future. He, provisionality was yeah. was quite his thing, So, which is what you get in the Japanese kind of culture, the provisionality of all buildings, yeah. Yeah. because things might change. Um, He's wildly ahead of his time. Yes, mm -hmm. and he, I did promise I'd say one Colin Moore joke um, to You said he'd give us the I? best, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, then the joke was that he, 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 was, he did a lot of work on prison reform. And he, was, he reviewed a book once by an American architect who designed lots of prisons. And so he interviewed him and he said, um, well, tell me a lot about these prisons because they're very ambitious. He said, well, the main theme of the brief is um, it's, got to cost, it's going to cost a lot of money, but it's got to look cheap. <laughs> uh, and it, it, it's this notion of intentionally building in degradation yeah. into the design. Yeah. And that's why provisionality really was his kind of... In a kind of not planned obsolescence, but a, yeah. uh, with a but sense of the end. But allowing things to end when yeah. they didn't work anymore and you can make something yeah. new. The sense that you can be et eternally creative and respond to your circumstance, presumably. Yeah, and obviously there are lots of buildings that are very successfully repurposed in London and there are lots, the ones that are actually now going up, that will be very difficult to repurpose. Mm. 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 So it's mm. that thing, yeah. Yeah. We've um, we've spoken about, I suppose, one of the 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 parts of this book that feels prescient but isn't emphasised perhaps as much as we would nowadays, which is the kind of ecological dimension. And in the final few minutes of my questions, I wanted to ask about another couple of kind of the allotment now, I guess, and and, and where this book is pointing towards. One of the things that that that. Um, that the book describes is the changing demographics of, of allotment hearing. And in the post-war years, as we said, there was this big boom, but it was still a fairly masculine working class endeavor, according to the oral histories that, that Crouch and Ward collect here. Um, but they're already describing in that moment, in the sort of 70s, back to the land movement and, and the good life kind of um, model of reconnecting with, with the earth that was around and about then. The, the, the fact that, you know, people who were perhaps more interested in, in, in uh, medicinal plants <laughs> then um, growing kind of prize-winning um, leeks were moving on to the allotments. And, and there's an element of kind of tension there sometimes between those different user groups. But I wonder if we could reflect on how that development has continued, especially in the last few years with COVID. Yeah. And, 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 I was and, just going to say yeah. so much. I think COVID played such a huge um, role in people's desire to get back into growing. And actually, it's interesting, the statistics for... Access to gardens in the UK are unusually high. We we have a large sort of allotment of gardens in in this country. Do you mean allotment, allotment? No, or I mean literal private gardens, private gardens, balcony yeah, gardens. Right, yeah. um, but the access is unsurprisingly completely skewed along both class terms and race terms. So the allotment, I think, still occupies that same role, that there are people who really need allotments who don't have access to land, people who don't need 
it because they have already access to land. So I think it remains as political a space as ever, but there was something about the pandemic and the desire. This happens in every plague situation, war situation, is mm. that interest mm. in gardening just rockets up. So seed suppliers find that they're at, at <laughs> highest ever sales. And this happened, interestingly, in every country. So India, Italy, America, Russia, us all experienced the same huge interest and practical interest, buying of tools, buying of seeds. And um, yeah, so basically, I think the need for allotments is, if anything, more powerful now than it's been since the Second World War. And also the fact that lots of people don't want to go back to the office. And so that so four day weeks, four day weeks, yeah, the timetable of life yeah. is changing for yeah. a lot of people. And some people retiring early now yeah. can't see the point of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love the, the story you told at the end of your introduction about your friend who gradually retreated <laughs> from, from working <laughs> life into the, into the pee rose, just lying there listening to the bees buzz. Naked it was a kind in the bee of. Um, rose in this sort of idenic tent of red yeah. flowers, not going to work at all. What's anymore. it, Bartleby? This, you know, <laughs> I would prefer not to. I just like. But of course, while this, this, this renewed interest in the allotment that we can all celebrate, and indeed gardening and open spaces and growing things, um, has exploded the availability of allotments has, has plummeted. I mean, the stats in this book were already pretty bleak by, by the late 80s, and they've, as you say, Olivia, in your introduction, just yeah. got worse since. I think there's 100 people per 60 acres. No, I can't remember the stats now. It's I've got the stats there. So, well, we'll look them up. It's really <laughs> yeah. bad. It's really bad. It's, you have it's, to find the <laughs> Yeah, to find the stats. Um, and, and for the reasons Ken's um, articulated, that's increasingly pressurised, certainly in an urban context, by the need for housing, which is, you know, a kind of balancing yeah. act. So maybe my final question would be, what's the future? Is there any hope for the allotment as a, as a, as a, as a living space, as well as, a, as an idea? And what, what can we do to kind of celebrate? Preserving? Well, I think it's got to be linked back to housing policy and community land trusts. I mean, we've got to rethink the way, the, the kind of configuration of land and housing and people's relationship to it. And you can't do that with land values as they are at the moment. So you've got to um, defray the cost. You know, can't pay market prices for land in London mm. and achieve social housing yeah. that works and is meaningful. Yeah. And you either, that's either a political challenge for the Labour Party or whatever government is going, or they're just going to avoid it mm. and just say, well, you know, that's the market. Yeah. And the market will therefore dictate where the poor live, where the rich live. I mean, there are whole areas of London now around. where yeah. the housing is very expensive, but it's unoccupied. Mm. Mm. It's yeah. just bought for, you know, as a, as a bank vault. Yeah. yeah. So the land value thing is, mm. you know, bring back Henry George. Yeah. And that it's, you know, people need houses, but at the same time, it's ecologically catastrophic to just turn land into housing or yeah. offices as is continually happening in London. So that sense of making housing projects that always have some sort of community garden as well as individual gardens. Mm. And it, I mean, the thing that's so exciting about allotments is it sort of admits to the tension between the desire to do something together and the desire to have control of your own creativity. So I think the reason I love the allotment is that it allows you to do both. It's not just absolutely individualist, me against the world, but it's also not sort of relentlessly, uniformly a collective endeavour. It, it rubs constantly up against both and it's constantly having to be reinvented situationally. So it, it remains this sort of 
very exciting utopian space. Mm. Yeah, I love that image. And of course, that's what's so beautiful about the allotment as well, this kind of fairly standardised, almost like each plot being a canvas or a moment of mm. expression that yeah. standardises the... It's an emergent thing, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, look at the cover of the book. I mean, that kind of particularly... Yeah. I think it is particularly kind of British as well as a, as a vision of what... I mean, it, there's a lot of debate in the book about the difference between the vision of, of socialised allotment-type spaces in continental Europe, which are often kind of holiday home, you know, the chalet, yeah. Yeah. the leisure garden model, as opposed to the productive allotment of, of, of British culture. I would say, uh, practically, for anyone who's interested in, 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 <laughs> in starting something like a community garden, um, just do it. Like, we've got away with a lot just by digging up tarmac and putting trees in and not, not uh, ask for permission after it's, it's, been, um, it's been done. Um, but perhaps, I, you know, I can talk more about that if, if anyone wants to afterwards. Um, I think we've, we've, we've been talking now for 45 minutes, so I'd love to hear from any of you if there are questions, either gardening questions or political questions <laughs> or questions about anarchist carrots or whatever. Um, we'd love to hear from you. So, so are there any questions? Does anyone... Someone here yeah. in the front, yeah. I think there's a mic coming. No, there is a mic, sorry, yeah, but you can you can shout and I can. <laughs> in the book, there's mention of, as you touched on, the fact that gardening and allotments are the biggest leisure industry, if you want to use that term, in this country. So why the hell don't we have some sort of support, as sport does, as other things do? And it was recognised as probably one of the most healthy leisure, leisure industries that you could have. And one of the, probably the cheapest to run. Yeah. If you could get people, yeah. councils to donate space. Hmm. It's ridiculous. I think that's a really good question because I think that there is some strange historical division between the garden and the allotment, which means that bodies like, say, the Royal Horticultural Society, which is supposed to represent all of us as gardeners, mm are not really on the side of the allotment and maybe regard the allotment as a space of vegetable growing and then not really in their purview. So I think that's true. And the, the sort of garden renaissance that's happened over the last three years, the argument has been made over and over again about how much gardening as an industry brings to the country, but somehow it leans on the private garden and doesn't think about the communal garden, even though clearly it has health benefits and it has profound ecological benefits. I mean, you were saying earlier about the local councils supporting you because of the flood management, mm, mm, that yeah. getting rid of the tarmac and putting in plants. You can one, make an argument for that. One thing that does come across strongly from, from the book I, I, that I didn't know a great deal about at all is, the, is, the, is this tension between kind of the utopian, you know, the Thorpe Report, which was a very um, yeah. kind of important document in the establishment mm. of or the, the promotion of allotments in the 20th century, which advised that councils should be obliged to provide a certain amount of land per uh, population for allotments and various other really quite important and, and utopian ideals about what the allotment could be as a movement just seem to be completely ignored or brushed aside by councils because of, the, I suppose, the reasons that Ken describes about... And austerity know, politics, and which we yeah, haven't used yeah, that phrase yeah, at all, but, yeah. I mean, it is the gutting of councils mm. over the last, what mm. is it, 10, 12 years. Mm. But we, what we haven't talked about, where does the allotment fit in, in the family of public parks? Right, yeah. Because, um, I mean, there's been a lot, quite a lot, very good work been done in recent years on the, park, the park, use of parks. They're very, mm. they're the most popular, in leisure activity. But allotments kind of seem almost utilitarian, whereas they kind of don't fit in. And I, mm. and I think they should be 
embodied within the parks mm. kind of family mm. so yeah. that the that kind of philosophy of green space and is actually it's, tended by yeah I mean, when you think of a public park, it's, you know, like Clissold Park or London Fields. I mean, London Fields has, on a busy Sunday uh, summer, 20,000 people there. Mm. No security guards. Mm. Now, in any other public place, you've only got to have 300 people and the, the council, yeah. the police will demand, you know, 10 private security guards. Yeah. So that there's this whole kind of self-policing kind mm. of world. And I think, you know, we need a much stronger philosophy of the public of the green public space mm. and, and the, the allotment really should belong mm. with the park mm. system maybe all they, of which can be understood as the commons exactly yeah yeah, yeah. they maybe they fear the the organized nature of allotment owners and allotment owners. <laughs> sorry uh, could i just interject again i think part of the problem is that the allotment space is a closed space and therefore the problem is literally can't yeah yeah access to mm. more than just the members yeah and that and that is going to be a contest that i think we have and i think it's not about adjudicating for one versus the other it's about no. having both but i do think that that's part of it mm -hmm. that they do and i think that's part of probably a lot of people's emotional sense of allotments is if you if you have one wonderful but if you don't then it's mm. the sort of utopia with mm. literally a chain and a padlock almost yeah. always mm. Well, it's another reason why I think we felt quite strongly that we would establish a community garden rather than allotments, because although we do have a padlock, <laughs> everyone, um, there's, a, there, there's, you know, everyone's welcome when we're open to come and participate yeah. in the garden. It's not like you need to be a key holder to, yeah. to get in yeah. there. So. During the war, last war, a lot of parks were dug up as allotments. Yeah. yeah. And Crystal Park has growing communities in the middle, yeah. which has yeah. took over a redundant kind of There's um, an amazing nursery, project in Nottingham yeah. that, that is a friend of ours who that, that has a a, a community garden and, and has planters all along one edge of which are just for public foraging essentially so anyone who's passing can harvest whatever's ready at the time and we want to do the same but our gates are in front of the road so anyway so there's a quite possible. there's a project related to that which is called edible estates which works both in america and i think they had one here by the tate hmm. but the idea is that anyone contributes to it but the food is there for anybody to pick as they're walking yeah. past you don't have to have actually labored on the garden in order to go and pick a pear and there's something very beautiful about that because that really is a free space yeah i mean there's that amazing project in detroit when all the motor yeah. Yeah. yeah and they just took over the buildings yeah and started using them. Mm. who they built <laughs> thank Quite you yeah. more questions further questions I wonder, could you say a bit about who David Crouch is and what his involvement was in producing the book with Colin Ward? David Crouch was a landscape historian. Yep, yep. Did um, you know him? He's still a, a, he is still a landscape he, yeah, historian. Still has, yeah. um, I think he's just retired recently. Yeah, yeah. And he's done the two lovely drawings in the front. Um, and I think he, well, he obviously cooperated with Colin on the book. But you don't know about the, the methodological approach they took because there's a lot of oral history there's a lot of kind of yeah. interviews and site visits in this yeah. book and it's actually I, I, well, I would have been I would have loved to have been fly on the wall when they cooperated together because mm. I mean one uh, Colin was not I mean was very kind of the demotic language you know the everyday language of right. anything um, but no it worked well yeah, yeah. I mean it's important but then Colin cooperated with um, Harding uh, Dennis Hardy on two books on the plot lands um, on, on uh, holiday camps so, Colin so was, was a great, yeah, he was writer, a great, great yeah. collaborative yeah. writer. Yeah. But David Crouch has written a new introduction to this book as well. So, 
you do get a sense of his sort of up-to-date thinking about it. Yeah. And he Sorry, was also involved in a... <laughs> he was also involved in, in, in a, a TV programme that I haven't seen, but he, he, that was about tied moments. in with the, the book. The plot, the, is it? The called? plot, yeah, yeah, which sounds very... The kind of thing that should be uploaded to YouTube somewhere. I bet Maybe it's we on can YouTube. Do it, but, yeah. Maybe you can watch it. Thank you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Any other questions? Is anyone? Yeah. Would you mind if I held forth a bit? (laughs) (laughs) Rather than asking a question. More of a a comment than a question. I'm pro comment. (laughs) It's it's really in response to something you said, Olivia. Is this working, by the way? Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, About trying to make sure that this sort of gardening, not just allotment garden, community gardening and so on, was open to all classes and, and ethnic minorities and so on, which I entirely agree with. But I will say that my experience in a London primary school, where I was working with the children who were new to English and with their parents, and also running the gardening club, gradually led me to realise that there are a lot of people from ethnic minorities, women I'm talking about, we didn't really get the men in that much, um, for whom gardening is really undesirable. It, it sort of like, it reminds perhaps of a time when, you, when in a different country you were working on the land. And there's nothing romantic about working yeah. on the land if you've been forced to. Yeah. And... Um, Similarly, with a lot of our working-class parents, the very last thing they wanted to do was get their hands dirty. So, I mean, I think, although one wants to be, come one, come all, one and all don't all necessarily want to come. Though that isn't the history of the allotment. The history of the allotment is very much that it's a working-class space. Well, no, the history of the allotment is absolutely 100% that it's a working-class space. That is its history. As in, no, I'm not talking about right now. I'm talking about where the allotment emerges from is a desire to create an antidote to the enclosure. So they're they're developed by mutual aid societies. They're developed by miners. That's where the whole notion of the allotment in Britain comes from. So where it's at right now in terms of communities that you live in, I can't comment on. But in terms of 
deal of social space in our culture, that is what it is. It never existed as a middle-class idea, though I think it's probably been co-opted by middle-class mm. people. But mm. I think that they're so emphatic in this book about really tracing its history and not saying it's an idea by middle-class people as a sort of, mm. bit, you know, noble... Uh, I've forgotten the word. What well, the phrase they use is the gentrification of leisure, which is one of the kind of forces that, are, that is happening in the 80s. I mean, I think we can all agree that no one should be compelled to no, work no, on an allotment. That's, uh, that's, but when, it, when we started our community garden, my in-laws who are Yugoslavian were appalled that we wanted to spend <laughs> our time <laughs> big, grubbing around in the dirt. They'd left kind of impoverished farming life behind. But I don't think that, you know says anything about what allotments can give you if you're interested in, in taking them on or, or yeah. working on them. I mean, there, there should be spaces yeah. that you can... And I, I think, haven't, wasn't there a big scheme called Learning Through Landscapes, which was to do with the recultivate, the tearing up of the asphalt of all traditional playgrounds to turn them into much more growing areas, and I think very successful. So I think the, the, there, are, there are kind of steps towards reimagining you know, the use, the, the, the high, basically the high status or, yeah. you know, the importance. The... Well, you have to have access before you can decide whether or not you want to... What you yeah. want to do. But also yeah. there's something, I don't know, this is a sort of nascent thought, but there's something about the allotment as purposeful, utilitarian gardening, as you get something from it, you get vegetables, versus the flower gardening that's just aesthetic. So I don't know that... I wonder how much there's a desire to make a kind of decorative garden rather than having to grow carrots, that allowing people to choose what they want to grow and how they want to grow, or that they want to do nothing in a garden, they just want to sit in a garden. That, that <laughs> all of those possibilities, I think, should be available in the, the, the community garden. I mean, that's, your, that's my vision. I want that. I want to sit under the beans in my, in my pants. <laughs> in the, yeah. there, was, there, was, there was a hand up over here, yeah, and then, and then one back there, and then one over there. Um, hopefully we'll have time for... Hi. Um, just sort of partly in comment on participation. I mean, I think from my own understanding of how gardening and gardening projects, whether community allotment based or home gardening for large communities with people with mental health or challenging issues that they're confronting, whether that's to do with personal lives, their pop, you know, uh, political or um, economic circumstances, that both in answer to I mean, kind of comment about why we aren't getting a kind of national organisation that represents gardens, is that it's split often between things like health as well, because mm -hmm. increasingly health and the health benefits and mental health and well-being are associated mm -hmm. with gardening in all locations. And that isn't, you know, that's come out of COVID, it's been very obvious and social prescribing. But also the issue of accessibility and perceived access mm. I think yeah. is greater than actual access because I'm sure in your community garden and from all the research on community gardens in the states in particular is that the perception of whether you can have access is much much greater and it applies to the landscape in general for minority groups for ethnic different ethnic groups that how they see these things as being available or of interest mm. is, a, mm. is a very different thing but it so it's access to these things, I think, has to be kind of factored into. How, do we, how does it seem attractive? Now, I know, and lots of small projects are ways into this. So projects that I'm aware of in Lincolnshire, for example, a small project um, on community horticultural therapies, it's just 
finding spaces that you can let people just wander onto in a place that they would come to anyway mm. for another reason. Mm. And so it's being able to find those spaces and negotiate with the owners of those spaces or the leaseholders of those spaces to get that across. So it, you can create an allotment or a quasi-allotment space that is accessible. Mm. Sorry, that's a bit of a dialogue. No, that's really, that's really a good point. And, and yeah. it's, I think it's something personally that we've had to learn by kind of doing in a sense. The perceived access that you speak about is so important, especially when, you know, ways of communicating what it is that you're offering to people, you know, clear signage, just being welcoming, not being on Instagram, but flyering when you're having an event, things like that, yeah. I think, have had a massive impact on the kinds of mm. people who are, who are using our space. But, but I mean, we, I don't think any of us want to force people into going to work on the, an allotment. <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. But, I mean, it's a bit like the adventure playground. You know, people say, well, it's dangerous, it's dirty, you know, children today won't. But, you know, adventure playgrounds are successful. City farms, all the dirty, the animals are going to produce viruses and bugs are going to... But if you don't have these spaces in a city, mm. what have you got left? Ashfell and glass. And things to buy. Yeah, and <laughs> things to buy and supermarkets. But, I mean, th th these small places, they don't have to be everywhere, but they, they kind of act as a reminder mm. that there are other ways of thinking about space yeah. and being in the world on a daily basis, under mm. the skies, in the rain or whatever, yeah. and playing differently. Yeah. Then, um, and therefore thinking differently. And therefore thinking differently, yeah. Yeah, yeah we don't want allotments, you know, we don't <laughs> want to tear down Bloomsbury and make them. <laughs> but, we want, <laughs> but we do want kind of spaces of imagination everywhere. Mm. Yeah. yeah. There was a question, yeah, just in front of you. you still have one, and then I... yeah, um, I, I, I just really an observation or a couple of observations, really. Um, the first is that I've been uh, benefiting, I think, from uh, working on an allotment where we have a plot rep who really doesn't really care that much about <laughs> what goes on. We have a lot of ethnic different ethnic groups, all sorts, you know, sort of fairly inner city part of London. And what has happened is people have developed their plots the way that reflects their social circumstances. So gradually, you know, some people with families, they've enlarged their accommodation, shall we say, their sheds. Hmm. So that's great because their kids come along and they can sit in the when it's raining in there mm. and, and they do. So <clears throat> it's a really interesting sort of development, I think, that um, is one thing that hasn't really come out. It's, it's just how the space is being developed. But mm. against that, you've got this real problem, and it was touched on earlier, that, of course, only a limited number of us have these allotments. And we've got a situation now where the pressure on land is enormous, which reflects the, the, the value, as mm. you've said. And personally, now we're getting to a situation where you can see the council are putting pressure on, oh, we want this land for development. And you're thinking, well, how do you fight? Do you fight this? Is it right to fight this? Because you're depriving mm. someone of homes. Mm. And I'm, it troubles me. And what's what's the feeling amongst the, the, the allotment here? Well, like, because, uh, you know, there's the, 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 the number of political 
conversations you have on an a, a overall plot of maybe a fifth, about 50 plots. Probably talked about three or four mm. plot holders who mm. are, mm. if you like, politically active. You know, uh, I mean, you know, there are there are asylum seekers. There are, you know, there are uh, refugees. There's all sorts. You know, and and you can't get on that level with with a lot of uh, plot holders. Mm. Uh, other people just don't care, of course. Um, and and that you know that it's interesting though, and it does trouble me. And I'm interested in any convers- thoughts that you would have on that. I think setting. I mean, we sort of touched on this before, but I think setting housing against the values that the allotment stands for is somehow fundamentally wrong, that we need both. It, it shouldn't be an either-or. It shouldn't be you have to relinquish this land that you're using for you know, sustainable growing, but also for biodiversity, for community, because you need housing. The, the, we should have both. We should have a possibility of having both. And it's so often that two, two necessary things are set into conflict because something else is happening in the sidelines and something else is the kind of commercial building that particularly mm. in London is going on all the time. So, you know, I, do, I don't know what the answer to that is in terms of your own particular plot or the kind of conversations you can have on it. But I think um, feeling that you've taken something from other people's potential homes is wrong. There's, that's a sleight of hand that people who are profiting from the increased land prices would be very happy for you to be thinking. Well, I think it goes back to what Ken was saying about this being as much an architectural question as a, as a gardening question, you know. It's about, yeah. it's about... It's about how we want to live. It's, yeah. it's about what... I mean, it's a question about value, isn't it? Yeah. At, at its centre is how do we value our lives? What do we want our lives to involve? Yeah. And what part does profit play in our lives? Yeah. And also, I mean, we're, I mean, if you look at the design, a lot of um, town extensions, and so they start with the road system, and that, you know, the road is everywhere. Yeah. And there's no grass. Yeah. Or, you know. And they don't have a doctor's surgery, and they don't have a school. No, no. no. But it so is it's, very it's noticeable and, and pernicious how the the garden, the community garden, the, the amount of uh, I mentioned earlier, a group in, in in the Olympic Park, and there's been a couple of. We got a load of donations of plants from a community garden that was there temporarily while the developers decided what how big a building they were going to build on the plot, and they were you know they were given this space for a few years temporarily. But the sense in which the the, the allotment or the or the, the community garden or the, the green space within a massively developed part of the city is always a potential building mm-hmm. is pernicious, and it's not. I, I think Olivia's right. I agree. It's, it, it, putting that anxiety onto gardeners, onto those who are using those spaces generatively and and generously is kind of appalling and a failure of policy as much as it is. So don't beat yourself up, <laughs> I would say. I hope we've got time for, for, for one more question because there were there was a hand up over here and and, and there's a mic if you if you want to just so the people over here can hear. Uh, my comment was really just um, to follow on from a previous comment about um, uh, I guess uh, kind of maybe people coming from other parts of the world and coming here and not feeling like they want to get their hands dirty. Um, I actually feel like that's, well, that's not my experience in terms of um, the people I've met. Um, And I made a film a few years ago called Our Land, which um, featured four black farmers um, in the UK, um, and three of which, um, you know, the allotment was very central in terms of them being able to um, access land for a start and also 
kind of reconnect to where they came from. Um, one of the farmers is a Windrush generation and he kind of learned how to farm from his grandfather in Jamaica and um, you know, having access to a farm is he, it's still impossible for him, but he's managed to um, cultivate cho-cho and various exotic fruits and veg from um, Jamaica in his kind of plot, in his allotment. So he's been able to be kind of enterprising and, um, and also, you know, reconnect to the land that he came from. And the same with another farmer who's um, from Zimbabwe and his... Um, family had a small allotment in Tottenham and you know that's what ignited his love um, for food growing um, and he's now a, an urban farmer but a lot of his contemporaries um, well all of his contemporaries basically thought that he was crazy to be going to, 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 to work in an allotment and to be a farmer but I think you know those spaces are really helpful for people um, to be able to connect to a land in a meaningful way you know when they are far from home and that was their kind of norm where they came from, but, you know, is, is not really possible in the UK. So that was just a kind of comment. To make. Yeah, thanks yeah. for that comment. And that's definitely, yeah. I think, reflected, as well as Olivia was saying, the history of the allotment in, in this book is yeah. it's always been a site of cultural exchange and of, of, of people who want to grow whatever it is that they want to grow. Um, there's a really great organisation called uh, Land in Our Names, Lion, which is doing a lot of work to try and increase access for... Oh really? Uh, oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, and 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 of course their argument, which is I think you know completely legitimate, is that you can't say people won't aren't interested in gardening until they have access to spaces in which they're able to garden freely and and yeah. So and the gardening is always on some level I think engaged with making yourself feel at home on the earth. So the choice of growing vegetables that are from one country that you lived in to another country that you're currently living in, those, those sort of things, they're really emotional transactions, but they're also really political transactions. Hmm. Great. Well, uh, we can carry on the conversation <laughs> over, over, over drinks, I think. But um, thanks so much for, for coming and for all your questions and um, lots to think about. But I hope this has given us a sense that interest in allotments and allotments themselves are in rude health. And go, go forth and I wish you a good harvest. <laughs> thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.